0: Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mom podcast. This week I'm joined by Chef Brian Harada. He's the executive chef, owner, founder of Nau, which is a restaurant over on the Big Island of Hawaii. Hawaii is an island chain made up of a handful of different islands. You got Oahu, which is where Honolulu, Waikiki Beach is. And you got Maui, which is another famous island. You have some smaller islands, Kauai, which is really good for like hiking, I guess. Lanai is another one which I I think Larry Ellison, who's like the founder of Oracle, owns like 80% of that island that he bought at. Molokai, which is pretty much locals only, um, that was the one that was pretty heavily featured in the Anthony Bourdain episode, if you've ever seen that episode, because we kind of reference it during this interview a couple times, at least I do. Then you have, uh, I forget the name of the one island that they used as kind of a target practice island and broke the water table, so it's inhabitable. And then the Big Island, which is really just called Hawaii, but everybody just calls it the Big Island. Anyways... That's where Brian's located, just for giving you some geographical context and everything. If you've never looked at the history of Hawaii, do so. Even if you just read the Wikipedia page, it's pretty fascinating, to as well as how it became a state and all the stuff that the U.S. government was involved in and and everything like that. Brian's on the Big Island. He founded this restaurant, now, and it's basically almost like Noma, but in Hawaii. So he forages ingredients from Hawaii that are native to Hawaii, but he's not cooking Hawaiian food. He's cooking those ingredients. It's still modern cuisine, but is located in Hawaii. He's paying respects to Hawaii and its ancestors and everything like that. But he's not cooking pineapple. Like he's not cooking all these kind of Americanized things. Like when you think Mexican food, a lot of people think tacos, burritos, stuff like that. But Mexican cuisine is so much more than that. There's just an American version, which some people refer to as Tex-Mex. And this is kind of similar where there's Hawaiian cuisine that everybody thinks of, you know, spam, some rice dishes and some ham and some pineapple. And and some of that stuff is in there, but you know, like pineapple is not originally indigenous. Like that was kind of brought over and planted and turned into kind of a, a modernized crop and everything. But He's foraging ingredients that nobody else is using. He's going out into the rainforest and stuff, finding this stuff um, because he's native there. He's got a couple generations of family, so he knows the landscape and everything. And he's cooking tasting menus with it. And it's beautiful. And there's just nothing else that's going on like it, um, not just in the state of Hawaii, but really anywhere else in the world. There's a handful of restaurants that do this kind of thing this extensively uh, in the world. So it's pretty unique. And I was super excited when he agreed to come on, he's been nominated for a couple of James Beard awards. We seem to always have at least one Hawaii chef on a year. So first year was Taylor Ponte over at Commodo. And he was named, you know, best chef in Hawaii by, um, you know, I think it was Maui magazine. They do these local awards for the state kind of state awards. And, you know, he was named chef of the year uh, and he's been doing some dinners and stuff like that as kind of part of that honorary title and everything that he's been holding and and held. Uh, And then we had Chris uh, Kajoika on from Miro Kaimuki. He just uh, opened a new restaurant in Hawaii not too long ago called Agaru, and then he also just opened a restaurant in Japan, which he kind of talked about on the episode that he was on. He was just getting into the early stages of planning that and figuring that out. And that is actually just recently opened. He was on last year, and now this year we have Brian. And you know, Hawaii has some great chefs, it's a great food community, it's a great food place to go. I, I think it gets overshadowed by California a lot. I don't think people think of Hawaii really much in the food sense. I, I think they think of it as, you know, the beach, the vacation, all that stuff. There is a food community there and they're doing some really interesting and really impressive stuff too as well. But you can find Brian and the restaurant on Instagram. So uh, Brian's Instagram handle is at Brian Harada 808. And the Instagram handle for the restaurant is. Nau Hilo, so N A U H I L O, all one word, no spaces, no apostrophes, or anything like that. You can follow both of those accounts on Instagram. Uh, you can make reservations if you're going to wind up out there and you want to go to one of his dinners at Whitehaven Farm, they're through talk. Um, so you can make a reservation there. They do them, you know, a couple times uh, a month. Um, they do kind of tasty menus there too as well. So um, it always kind of evolves and changes with the seasons and everything, but it's a really, really awesome concept and I can't wait to give it a try, hopefully in like a year or so when we're back out there, because we've never been to the big island. And um, Hawaii's just got some great restaurants just kind of scattered all over the place. So it's definitely worth a trip if you're a foodie and you've never been there or anything like that. Um, it's a pretty awesome experience. But uh, you can follow us on Instagram too as well at Spoon Mom. Check out our website, spoonmom.com. Different chef profiles, sommelier profiles, all that stuff on the website, photos um, too as well, accompanying all the businesses and everything are attached to those profiles along with links to the individual episodes. We also have a contact page. So writing questions, comments, feedback too as well. Appreciate those that have been writing in. We've been getting a couple of weeks. So that's pretty awesome to see um, everybody kind of starting to you know be engaged with the podcast and send stuff in. So that's always awesome to get those. And we'll get back to you in a day or two as soon as we receive the message. And to make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast, whatever platform that you're using, just click the little check mark, uh, Spotify, Apple, whatever. If you do follow us on Stitcher, which is a pretty big podcasting platform, that is actually, I got notified is going to be shutting down at the end of August. I think it's August 29th. So you're going to have to use a different platform for any podcast. They're completely doing away with the platform. It sounds like it's getting kind of folded into Pandora a little bit. So if you follow us on Stitcher, choose a different one. Google podcast is very similar. Um, I think they kind of use the same platform to piggyback off of an Apple podcast, Spotify, Amazon music, whole bunch of the Android apps. You can find us too, as well. If you have a Samsung phone, the Samsung podcast player, we're on there too. So, and if, For some reason, you're looking around on a player and you can't find us for whatever reason through a link or, you know, even just searching Spoon Mob on the platform, shoot us a message, um, let us know what platform you're trying to find us on and we'll take a look, see if there's, you know, some sort of technical issue or whatever, get it resolved, but everything should be kind of good to go now. Without any further delays, here is my interview and conversation with Chef Brian Harada of Nau over in Hilo in the big island of Hawaii. Thanks again for agreeing to come on the podcast and take some time out of your day here. Like I mentioned, you know, we've had two other Hawaiian chefs on before Taylor Ponte of Kamado and then Chris Kajoika of Miro Kaimuki. So it seems like every year we wind up having somebody from Hawaii on and it's one of our favorite places to visit. You know, I don't think we'll make it this year just because of our son being so young. I've known about kind of what you're doing for a little while, kind of stumbled upon, I think initially your Instagram uh, through Taylor Pawnee's Instagram. Yeah, just been following along and it's an amazing thing that you're doing. And I want to get into now and kind of how you developed that, what you got going on, where it's kind of going. But I always like to start at the beginning with everyone. How did you kind of first get involved with cooking? Because I mean, You're from Hawaii originally, your family's been there, I think for like four generations, right? First immigrated from Japan back in the 1890s, I read. How did you kind of first get involved with cooking and and
1: working in restaurants? The start of my career was actually really interesting. I think it happened in a way by accident because I was at the University of Hawaii, a bunch of my friends and I had this great idea to move off campus and rent a house, for that fact, we were suddenly forced to cook for ourselves because we no longer would have access to the, the dorm's cafeteria. Over a period of time, uh, I, I found myself actually doing majority of the cooking for us in the house. And I actually really enjoyed it. You know, I began calling my mom, asking her for recipes or asking her for cooking advice on how to make something, you know, and it could have been something as simple as like, mom, how do you make pork chops? It kind of began that way. The following year, uh, what I did was I left the university and I enrolled at our uh, community college for culinary arts. You know, it, it was a two year program. I graduated from there and immediately went into the industry. I moved from the big island back to Oahu where, I was born and raised. Both my parents are actually born and raised on the Big Island, but I worked there for a couple of years. I I worked at the Marriott Hotel Group uh, in Waikiki. I, I've cooked at a couple of restaurants on Oahu during that three or four years, I believe. I knew I wanted to move back to the Big Island. You know, I just love hunting and fishing as a hobby. And also, it's a hobby that I grew up with my family doing. I just knew that the Big Island was the place to be. Had the opportunity to work at Four Seasons Hualalai Resort. Um, so in 1999, I made the move back, uh, moved in with a couple college buddies there on the Kona Coast of the Big Island, and I worked at Hualalai Resort for I, I think it was eight years. I believe from that point, I had the opportunity to teach culinary at my old alma mater. I made another career decision to make that transition to education because it's something that I felt was important, but also something I was really interested in trying to do. And I ended up teaching for 12 years. I was a tenured assistant professor at the college. Uh, When I left the college, I was also the program coordinator. So I was in charge of the entire program, uh, overseeing the whole program anyways, and um, while still teaching full time. And this project or this, you know, this kind of brainchild at that point, which became Na'au, um, was something that I really wanted to do. And I thought it was time to do it before I got too old to do it. To be honest, a lot of my colleagues in, in the University of Hoist, you know, educational system thought I was kind of insane for leaving because I was tenured. Most people in my position would just stay at the college have great benefits and work there till retirement and have an amazing pension and all of those things that come along with, you know, that type of career. But this is something that really was pulling at me and something that I felt like we, we needed to do or I needed to do for myself. So at the end of the day or the end of my career, I can look back and, you know, be really proud of at least trying very hard to make some positive changes in our our food culture in Hawaii and um, to help also preserve certain things that I I feel like are in danger of becoming extinct here.
0: So did you ever work in restaurants like in high school or anything or anybody from your family or was it just strictly kind of like hunting and and things of that nature
1: that kind of pulled you into it? It never happened till later in life. Like, when when i was in college we were forced to cook for ourselves and i kind of discovered that but at the same time looking back now i've always since i was a really small child like i've always been interested in watching my mom cook in the kitchen she'd let me do like some small task in the kitchen but i never growing up i never considered it a career option um but another interesting story too is My mom told me a story was when I was really little, I'd be playing with some toys or something in the living room and the TV would be on. And if a cooking show came on, I would stop playing with my toys and actually like be entranced by the the cooking show. Maybe that's something subconscious that I didn't realize back then. But you know, I I thought like, oh okay, maybe maybe this makes sense that I was destined to cook even though it took me later in life to to pursue it i guess so when
0: you're going to the university of hawaii what was your intended career path before you wound up going to the
1: community college i was majoring in aquaculture actually i i still have a huge interest in aquaculture um and during high school kind of going back to your previous question is you know during high school i i worked at a pet store for um since i was legally able to work so from my sophomore year my sophomore junior and senior year in high school i worked at a pet store at a local pet store i loved animals i love raising fish um my my poor parents um had to deal with me having um i think i had 18 fish tanks in in their indoor patio i had 18 fish tanks in there with all different types of fish and i was just so into it and but at the same time, that that was kind of my interest and I thought that would be my career path. But at the same time, in the early 90s, when I was enrolled in aquaculture was also the same time um, our, our country had that big economic collapse as well. You know, we had a few, we had a couple more since then, but it was one of those downturns in the economy and all of the aquaculture farms that we visited on the island during that time they all said the same story, like, oh, we're going to go out of business in six months. We cannot make it. We're, gonna, we're shutting down. There's, we can't make it financially. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to graduate with this with this aquaculture degree and I'm basically going to be jobless, you know? And it was kind of a big fear for me at the time. So I made that leap of faith where let's, let's try cooking because I, I like doing that.
0: So when you decide to go to culinary school, you eventually graduate from the culinary arts program at Hawaii Community College. But why did you choose the community college specifically? Was there not a program available at the University of Hawaii? Or did you not ever look at maybe going to San Francisco or LA? You know, it's, it's relatively close, a four to six hour flight somewhere in there. But why did you kind of decide to stay local?
1: For me, I think it was a a comfort level. This might sound a little weird, but you know, like, I was far enough away from my parents to not be able to like have to live with them anymore. And I'm not saying anything like I, I had a great childhood, but, you know, it was an opportunity to be a, on a different island from my parents. But at the same time, because my parents were originally from the big island of Hawaii, I still had a lot of relatives that gave me support here while I was going to to um, culinary school. So it was, to me, it was a good match and a good fit to stay on the big island and at the same time too like it still allowed me to do what I love to do which is like fishing and hunting um during that those those um college years
0: so after you graduate like you mentioned you kind of work at a few restaurants uh, around Hawaii but eventually land at the hulalei grill at uh, the four seasons there and that was a restaurant you know run by Alan Wong who's one of kind of Three or four really famous YA chefs from kind of the early to late 90s, kind of that time frame. But how'd you kind of wind up there? Was that specifically you wanted to work there because of the Alan Wong Association? Or did you just kind of apply to places and that was a place that wound up saying, yeah, you know, come on in?
1: I, I actually got hired by the resort when the resort was relatively young. Um, I believe the resort was open for less than a year when I got hired. So this was before Alan Wong was brought on board to um, you know, have his restaurant on the resort. I was there for, you know, a period of years before he actually came on board. So it was it was purely by chance. I wasn't necessarily focusing on that particular resort. It was actually my best friend's wife who sent me a newspaper ad looking for a cook there. And I applied. Um, I had three separate interviews. So I actually had to fly over from Oahu to the Big Island for three separate interviews. I eventually got hired for this position. And from there, about when was it? 2001, maybe 2002, Chef Allen was brought on board to um, actually, you know, create this restaurant. It was known as Huala light Grill by Alan Wong. At that time too, the resort itself was very popular in the sense that we were considered the number one spa resort for many years in that period, at the very least for the entire United States, for the entire North America region. There was also measurements made or comparisons made to other uh, spa resorts around the world, but we were um, for six out of the, Almost eight years that I was there. I I believe we were considered the number one spa resort. So with with that came a lot of um, high expectations. You know the the clientele, the Four Seasons clientele combined with our homeowner base there was um, very elite. You know you're you're talking the people who own homes there. You know are the one percenters and and what have you. So the level of cooking or the level of uh, guest expectations were very high there at the restaurant
0: so when you're there for that amount of time essentially eight years as you kind of mentioned what did you initially think your next step was going to be because you're going down it sounds like at this point this kind of fine dining kind of european style trajectory which i think at roughly around that time might have been kind of the only trajectory really aside from maybe doing something super local you know, farm to table started coming through, you know, too as well. I think during that time period with, you know, those kind of predecessors, you know, Roy, Alan and them, they all kind of get together and make this kind of co-op and kind of really develop the farm to table movement there. Where did you kind of see yourself headed before you wind up deciding to be a a professor and a a teacher, you know, for culinary
1: school at the college? I think that's a great question in the sense that like, you know, yeah, you know, we had these twelve Hawaii regional cuisine chefs that kind of banded together to create this essentially you know a farm-to-table movement here in Hawaii and you know most chefs of my generation work at the very very least under at least one of these 12 chefs during their young careers and we're you know I'm now at this age where like I'm the person in charge of the kitchen now or I'm the I'm the executive chef, not all of a sudden. But we owe it to those 12 chefs to make that, you know, that bold move and that big push for Hawaii's food. I've always wanted to teach, I think, and share what I know, but I never had intentions like it. The offer to begin teaching it at my alma mater kind of fell in my lap. My my good friend who I went to culinary school with, he was actually already teaching um, there at the college during the first half of the program students you know he, he was teaching the the basic cooking and the fundamental cookery uh, techniques and he basically just said like hey, brian like there's there's gonna be a lecture position open next year like if you're interested you should apply and I did and I got it you know I eventually a uh, permanent position opened up uh, I applied for that and I got that and it was a five-year vetted like tenured process so if, if you don't perform or have great student uh, comments on your performance through the years, uh, if your contract renewal documents are not in line or written well, um, basically the university can have the option of just basically letting you go or getting fired. And then by the end of that five-year process, uh, you need to write a dossier and... Um, It's a long process where multiple committees look and read it and your peers also read it and they need to approve it in order for you to be tenured. That was kind of the process. So it's basically, you know, you're on probation for five years is the simplest way to explain it is you're on probation for five years and you need to, you know, perform at at a high level. I enjoyed my time there. I, I grew a lot, you know, maybe I didn't grow so much from a, professional cooking standpoint, but I grew a lot in terms of um, how I matured, how I, you know, could, I guess, actually learn or teach myself how to teach. And now with this Na'au project, I'm taking those skills that I learned teaching my students in culinary school to teaching my cooks how to, right now, we, you know, we we forage uh, wild ingredients we prepare them, we cook them, we plate them, we serve them, you know, our, our staff gets to see the full entire food cycle of that one ingredient. And especially when we're using like endemic ingredients found only in Hawaii or, you know, just native ingredients from Hawaii, I, I feel like I can teach or show them to the best of my ability the full entire cycle of that, that, that food ingredient.
0: Once you kind of start teaching you know, and you get into a little bit, essentially the first five years, you have basically a year-over-year contract. So you're always kind of on this, you know, could be your last uh, year until you hit that five-year mark, like you said. But what was the biggest difference that you noticed from being a teacher at the you know culinary school versus being a previous student at the culinary school? So what is that kind of difference like being on the other side of it? Yeah,
1: I mean, it was the first... Year or two, when I began lecturing, running my labs, which were uh, working kitchens within the culinary school, I guess it was really interesting because I had to learn and change my mindset that the students in my class, when we're in the kitchen, I cannot view them like my professional cooks at Hualala Resort. I cannot have that same level of professional expectations. For them. So, like, I really had to rethink or reteach my mind how to approach certain things, or could be something as simple as like how I write a recipe. Like, I need to be way more detailed. I need to have more visuals. I need to work the steps through more intimately so the students understand what is happening or what the process is. I also needed to be more conscious of how difficult the menu would be to execute and perform. Like I cannot design a menu that's going to be amazing on, on paper. The students cannot execute them to the point where doable, you know, so th- those are all things that I needed for myself to transition into. You know, it was a learning curve for myself during those early years.
0: When you're making these these menus for the students, you know, in their labs, what is it Looking to demonstrate kind of basic techniques or basic flavor profiles? Like, is that kind of what you're developing, or how do you kind of uh, approach that?
1: It was a broad spectrum of topics. Our program, just like every other culinary program in the state, we all fall under the ACF, which is the American Culinary Federation, that is our governing body for culinary in Hawaii. The last time I did our accreditation renewal, I think it was 365 competencies that we needed to cover with our students. So they govern, they basically tell us what we should be teaching. They let us determine how we teach it and when we teach it, like which semester and which course we teach it in. But essentially like we have 365 competencies in which we need to present and the students need to learn and this these competencies are very broad it was heavily european cookery based um and it's also a big being honest like i'm I'm, i wasn't a big fan of a lot of their competencies because it wasn't a great representation of what and how we cook in hawaii and majority of our students are not going to move to the mainland to cook they're going to stay here in hawaii somewhere And and to me, it wasn't a good and thoughtful, comprehensive list of competencies to be taught for students that will be cooking very differently in the profession here, especially in terms of ingredient knowledge. That's my one gripe with the ACFs, you know, and I think there's a lot of professionals here even that still believe in it. And that's fine. I'm just not one of them that is a strong believer that you should only be focusing on European cooking and not even the Asian cookery in those competencies were like only a couple lines here and there like we got to teach spring rolls or we got to teach fried rice or something when you look at global cuisine about 75% of the global population is Asian in terms of food like if you're looking at at the world like there's so much people that live say in China or Southeast Asia India those are huge populations You talk about Indian food, India's cuisine is like one of the most ancient cuisines out there. So is China's. China's cuisine is like older than anyone else's It's older than French cuisine. The ACF didn't, to me, at least give enough effort towards those styles of cookery in the competencies.
0: As your kind of story goes, you know, you're you're teaching for a while, but you start to notice there's some knowledge gaps, you know, with the students. With the curriculum and you got to hit all these kind of knowledge points and everything, it's kind of set in stone on you, right? So you can't really change it even though you see kind of these holes in what students aren't learning or things that, you know, you feel they should know, but you don't really have much of an option to teach those things,
1: right? Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, like my curriculum was essentially like dictated to me what I'm I'm teaching um, through this accrediting body. I've always strongly felt that like, yeah, most of these things are very important. I'm not going to deny the fact that fundamental cookery is is very important, even in today's modern cookery techniques. Like there's still, you know, you still need to know how to properly braise. You still need to know how to properly cook pasta. You know, like these things are are fundamental. But at the same time, there was a big component missing that I felt our students weren't getting this na'au project is kind of tackling that void in the food cookery or the you know the showcasing the ingredients here in hawaii more accurately uh giving that more of the spotlight i just felt like this was something important to do
0: having both gone to and taught culinary school looking back on that portion of your career and kind of what the world has evolved into now, do you still feel it has the same value and merit now compared to then? Would you recommend it to somebody who, you know, wanted to be a chef, was aspiring to be a chef and open their own restaurant one day? Do you think it still has value
1: for somebody like that? I've seen and had cooks that have worked under me come from both sides of the coin. I've had young cooks uh, get hired at Hualala Resort. I was part of the hiring process in the later parts of my career there, but I've also worked with uh, cooks that essentially after high school, you know, or during high school was that, you know, that really common career trajectory where like, oh, they started washing dishes in high school at a restaurant and kind of got sucked into this career. or I don't know if sucked into is the right word, but, you know, they they dishwashed and they got transitioned or promoted to prep cook in the back and, you know, peeling potatoes and peeling carrots and whatnot to moving onto the line. Um, and I, I've seen both sides and it depends on what I guess that individual would like as a end goal for their career or what, what do they want out of it? You know, I, the ones that started from dishwashers, I think they tend to be a little bit more humble they know what it's like to wash dishes. So the tendency is to they treat the dishwasher, their dishwashers now really good because they know how difficult dishwashing can be or or is. Versus I've I've seen and worked with, they're not used to, to working very hard. They're not used to, to standing up for 14 hours. The they complain that the kitchen's too hot, you know, or, you know, whatever it is. Like there's, you know, and I'm not saying that every person that graduates from the CIA is, you know, garbage. It's just, you know, I think uh, amazingly high. It's amazingly high. My my cousin, she's she's the executive pastry chef at Aulani, which is, you know, on Oahu, and she graduated from Hyde Park in New York. It took her almost ten years to pay off her her student loan. It was like ninety thousand dollars, I think she said, for her tuition. There's there's good and bad, I think, on both sides. There's there's what I've seen from CIA graduates or cordon bleu students or that come to stage with us and stuff, they have a lot of knowledge. To me, when the day's done, it always comes down to an individual's like heart and, and soul. How hard can they work? How how into it are they? You know, is it something fleeting? You know, like they're cooking because it seems cool. When I started cooking, like we were still considered like you know just blue collar, and now it's getting to that point where like there's everything is so glamorized through social media. There's so much cooking shows out there. Every every chef wants to be this like superstar, you know, Marcus Samuelson or whatever, you know, like and just be like a Gordon Ramsay and and just be like this high profile. What I think a lot of the younger generation doesn't realize is like you still gotta cook and you still got to perform, it's still stressful. It's still a very fast-paced industry. You still need to show up. You still need to be there, You, you know, mentally present and physically present. You know, like all of these things, I think a lot of people from the outside looking in don't realize. And even for myself, like the first five years in the professional industry, like I struggled surviving it. For me, I was at the tail end of that really ugly part of the food industry where your chefs would swear down at you. They'd verbally abuse you every day. You got crazy work environments. You know, I'd look at my instant read thermometer on my sleeve and during service, it always read 101 degrees, you know. So you're in 101 degree, surrounded by fire. You know, like my old executive chef, he would come out of the, his office, scream, swear at me, And then go back in his office and slam the door. I was at the tail end of that. You know, it's a lot different now, I believe, in most restaurants. It's a lot more humane. I think the chefs, especially the chefs of my generation, have made that transition and turned the corner to, you know, treat their employees a lot better, treat their staff a lot more friendlier, provide better working environments. You know, all those things are making, I believe, positive changes. It's just when I graduated in 1996, it was still kind of the old style of, I worked under that really old European guard style of the kitchen brigade system and get verbally abused, sworn at, you know, for not being fast enough, um, not being quick enough. I'm fucking up the line because I'm so slow and I'm fucking up the other cooks you know, on the line during service because I'm so slow and I'm so brand new, you know, like all all those things I've had to endure, you know, for the first five years and it was really painful for me. I don't regret it. I think it was important for me to experience that and also to, I think I got a lot more resilient as a professional cook that way. I seen hell, you know, basically in the kitchen.
0: What do you think now would be, you know, the biggest improvement needed for people to consider culinary school early in their careers. Is it just the financial cost of it or is it changing the curriculum? Like what do you think is kind of the main pressure point that, you know, needs to change for people to to
1: actually consider it as a viable option? Everyone's decision is individualistic. Oh, that's a really great question. I I I don't I don't think there's one right way to do if they choose culinary school, especially if you go to like like a, a CIA, from what I understand, their curriculum is so intense. So like I have a couple buddies, uh chef buddies of mine, they've graduated from the CIA as well. But what they did before they transitioned to the CIA was that they made sure that they graduated from our local community college, culinary, before they enrolled into the CIA because The program is so intensive and so technical. You cannot just come in to that program and not know how to make a a soft boiled egg, or you cannot go in there not knowing how to make a risotto. You're going to get eaten alive, is what, from what I understand, is if you're going to take that high end culinary school route, you should really go to your community college, get your associate's degree in culinary before you enroll into like a CIA bachelor program. If not, you're probably not gonna make it, and you're gonna get eaten alive. That would be my kind of one recommendation. At the same time, too, like if that's not an option financially, I I think I turned out okay with <laughs> going an elite college um, for culinary. Uh, you know, I've I've been blessed to be a James Beard semifinalist the last two years. I think it's the product of hard work and desire, and also a passion for Hawaii's food that. I'd like to think that got me those accolades the last two years. You know, um, I'm actually like, to be honest, like I'm, I'm a very introverted, quiet person. I'm one of the most quiet people amongst my, my close friends. Like we can all be drinking at somebody's house. And I actually talk the least, you know, Um, I'm not looking for the, this attention per se, but I'm glad that it's happening for the sake of Hawaii's food and, for this Na'au project, I really don't mind doing, you know, interviews for magazines or having these accolades because, like, it gives me an opportunity to promote what I feel is not being promoted well enough in Hawaii. Um, in terms of the food culture, everyone thinks of Hawaii as just, you know, spam musubis and poke bowls. Our our food culture here is a lot more broad and dynamic and diversified especially because of the sugar industry in the past you know we have we have Filipino food here we have Japanese food we have Chinese food we have Portuguese food you know we have this whole myriad of different food cultures that moved here in order to work the sugar plantation back in the 50s and 60s and 70s that's our food landscape now for me and for now I don't cook Hawaiian food I, I want to make that clear like I don't cook Hawaiian food I use, ingredients from hawaii i have dishes on our our chef tastings a lot of times that are drawn from hawaiian cuisine but i do not define ourselves as hawaiian food our food encapsulates all of the major ethnicities that a local person would here in hawaii encounter or experience or grew up eating That's the type of cuisine I try to showcase for Na'al is that yeah, you might have one course that is Japanese inspired, then you might have a course that is Hawaiian inspired, then you might have a course that is Portuguese inspired. And these are all the major cultures that came here for the sugar industry. And I think I wanna try and help clarify that, you know, for for people who are interested in coming to Hawaii and trying our food, like expect that. Our famous malasada, which is a fried sugary bread, you know, is, is not Hawaiian, it's Portuguese. The Portuguese brought that over and we've integrated into our food culture. You know, we're very diverse and multi in this day and age, so we're not just doing Hawaiian food.
0: I want to get into that because, you know, you open now, October 2019 is kind of when you officially launch it and. The way I understand it is kind of your mission is to preserve native cooking traditions and highlight native ingredients, plants, sea life. And I think that gets misconstrued as because you're located in Hawaii, that it's Hawaiian cuisine and Hawaiian food that you're making. Where really it's using things that are native to Hawaii ingredients wise, but still cooking Food that you find in all these different cultures because all these different places touch the island at some point. Is that a fair definition, I guess?
1: Yeah, you're exactly right. I think you're exactly right. Like what you just said is just kind of hits it on the nail, where I I wouldn't want people who haven't been to Hawaii and come to Hawaii for the first time and have this unrealistic expectation that, you know, like what a lot of the hotels and resorts serve here, a good representation or real expectation of Hawaii. For me, whenever I travel abroad or far away, I always want to eat what the local people in that region are eating to get a true sense of, for example, like my most favorite food experience when going to New Zealand was going to a Maori hangi. And the native tribe there actually cooked the hangi foods uh, which are similar to uh, the Hawaiians imu, like so it's um they're they're cooking underground using hot rocks and and covering it and it was my favorite food experience while in New Zealand just because like I want to eat something authentic I want to eat something that people here in New Zealand grew up eating uh is part of their culture I was in Sardinia last June and I really appreciated. The fact that I got to experience, you know, suckling pig, which is a specialty of Sardinia. I got to go truffle hunting in Italy and we, you know, we ate truffles that we found in the vineyard and we we cooked it up in multiple courses. Like those are the food memories that to me are very uh, special because I just want to eat what the people eat and the ingredients found there naturally and that's what we're trying to do here with Na'al. You know, I'm serving wild forage ingredients. I'm I'm serving ingredients naturally found here, naturally grown here. I'm trying to put flavor profiles together that any local person here growing up would be familiar eating those flavor profiles. Uh, we're presenting it in an elevated fashion, of course. You know, for me that's the important thing where I don't want our guests to be misled in terms of this is Hawaiian cuisine or like this is some sort of cuisine. Like I'm trying to provide something through our food for guests to have a starting point. If this is their first time, like, oh, this is flavor profiles that or ingredient combinations that, you know, local people eat here. That's kind of part of our mission for this project. It also helps to educate my cooks where a lot of my cooks are my former students from the college. For us, the educational component is really necessary in the sense that you know our American society has really changed over the last couple of decades. Um, social media is a big thing. Um, I notice a lot of the younger generation; their their smartphone is permanently glued to their hand. They cannot they cannot break away from it. The phone is always in their hand. They have very minimal interests of the natural outside world. Um, many of them have never climbed a tree in their life. Um, many of them have never gone out fishing. You know, these are these are things within our society that um, we're we're really straying far away from the natural world and the natural environment is 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 what I noticed within my students in the past and. It's also the catalyst for starting this Na'au project was I actually, during the fall semester, when I get my new cohort of students and I have them for the entire year. So I have them for the fall and I have them for the spring semester. Usually on the second day of, of school, uh, I give them a pop quiz. It's it's super simple. It's just basically um, 13 PowerPoint pictures of some of the most common local fishes eaten in Hawaii and found in Hawaii. And I present this to my students and majority of them, like about 90% of them will return this pop quiz back to me blank, not one thing written down. They're in culinary school and they can't identify a single local fish eaten in Hawaii visually on this PowerPoint. So think about it. like To me, that's a big red flag that Local food knowledge is not being passed down from generation to generation anymore. The younger generation has, or our society, I I should say, like I'm just calling out, like our society is losing its handle trying to feed itself. You know, we have Uber Eats now. We have a million different fast food chains. My former students, that's all they know is fast food. And they eat it every day. I'm trying to curb that trend for us right now.
0: So, when you talk about this gap in not, I think it's maybe more noticeable or or prevalent in Hawaiian society, just because so much of Hawaiian culture is tied to the land and the sea and being present in your environment, where you could probably, that gap maybe isn't as big if like you live in New York because New York is different pace. It's fast paced. You're in cities, tall buildings, Wi Fi, like all that stuff is kind of commonplace a little bit more, you know, in that kind of environment. But When you're talking about this gap that's forming, is there a specific cause or is it just a combination of technological advancements, disinterested in kind of either cooking or surfing or just things that, you know, kids when you were growing up always kind of did like, what do you kind of see as the catalyst for that gap being as big it is and continuing to kind of wide?
1: For me, this goes way beyond even uh, the food issues here in Hawaii actually began before I was even born. And that's to do with like Westernization. I'll use the, the Hawaiian culture as an example. You know, when, when the Hawaiian islands were colonized and eventually, you know, given statehood, a major westernization effort occurred here. You know, the military moved in here. My dad, he worked for the military his entire career for 37 years. But that's just kind of an example where, you know, like during this big transition where, you know, the Hawaiian government, the monarchy got overthrown by the American government. The Hawaiian language was prevented from being spoken at the time thing cultural practices like the hula was banned uh during this overthrow and this transition and a lot of food knowledge a lot of culture a lot of the language was lost you've seen this westernization with other cultures in america so like you know a prime example is the native americans you know they lost all their land they got they got relocated to other areas in the nation that were less desirable because the Western expansion wanted their prime lands for whatever reasons. You've seen the loss of culture through the Inuit community, through Westernization. They're now trying to regain their food culture. A lot of really bad things happen with the overtaking of, you know, a lot of land in Alaska as well from from them. And you see and hear and read all of these these native communities trying to regain their knowledge lost, their food ways, cultural knowledge, they're all trying to regain it. And Hawaii is still in this, in this state where like the Hawaiian people here, the native people of this island, the original people here, a similar thing has happened and they're trying to regain or recapture or create a renaissance of sorts for their culture and for the people. And I think that Westernization was, I have mixed feelings, it's a very complex topic. We, you know, when I say we, I mean Hawaii as a state in America, you know, I think we're fortunate in the sense that we were overthrown, and this might create a lot of slack, well, I mean, a lot of flack with what I'm about to say, but, you know, I think we're, we're fortunate in the sense that we got overthrown by a country that wasn't communist. If that makes sense. If if you were to look at that time in history, you got to be insane to not think that Japan or China or any of the, the communist countries at that time in history wasn't licking their chops and looking at this bunch of islands in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and looking at it as a very strategic military point. But at the same time, I don't agree with how America overthrew the Hawaiian Islands as well. So, you know, there's... It's a complex issue. I I really try not to talk about it. It's an important topic for people to understand that, like, the overthrow of the Hawaiian government here wasn't the right thing to do, or how they did it wasn't. And at the same time, can you imagine if China took this place over right now? Like,
0: no. What you're what you're saying makes perfect sense. It, essentially, the method that it was done was not obviously the the right one. The American government has a, a pretty well documented history about. Uh, overthrowing existing leaders, uh, in, uh, different fashions. But if you had to pick a side going with the democratic country is definitely the better option. If you have to pick a side versus, you know, at that time, whether it was, you know, China, Imperial, Japan, like whatever, you know, that could have been a, a, it's kind of a catch 22. Who knows how bad that situation could have been if it went one of them.
1: To be overthrown by one single dictator from a communist country, and just say, you know what, just kill everybody there. Just kill everybody, so we can have this this place. Like, would be like the most horrible outcome, I think, of all.
0: Kind of bringing it back to your concept and everything, trying to preserve and highlight these ingredients and techniques and stuff. When you're building, you know, your menus, because you do a lot of foraging. So, do you focus on? certain ingredients that you're looking for? Or do you let the ingredients that you find when you're foraging kind of dictate how you build out, you know, that month's menu? Or how do you kind of approach, you know, constructing your dinner menus?
1: As far as the wild forage ingredients, the seasons dictate the ingredient usage, you know, so like if, if I use the Northwest area of the United States, you know, so like, Oregon and Washington and their wild mushrooms are prolific during certain times of the year. And that kind of dictates when that ingredient is utilized on menus. I use that same, I guess, approach for our menu in terms of the wild forage ingredients. So for example, about three weeks ago is what I determined was the end of our Apu'u season, which is uh, our large tree fern that grows in the rainforest. We harvested what I felt was a good amount. I, I can the entire batch that we forged for in order to preserve it for the entire year. But from here till next February or early March, I won't forge for that ingredient anymore because it's not to be had anyways. So that determines when I forage. So a lot of the ingredients are determined in that fashion kind of like the Hawaiians call it vana, which is the sea urchin or people will know it as uni. I only harvest that ingredient and specific species of vana usually during only August and September, which is I follow the Hawaiian uh, calendar for when is the optimal time to harvest that ingredient where the gonads, the actual uni is the largest. That's only two months in the entire year that I'll use that ingredient. Season affects a lot of our wild forage stuff. Um, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for our endemic native ohella oh berry to ripen. It's still really tiny right now, it's about the size of a caper. It's probably going to be a couple months before I can even harvest that. I'm looking at another endemic uh, native berry that we utilize on our menus. Um, the flowers are just coming out right now. So we're looking at probably May or j- early June or a harvest of that other native berry. You know, these are just some examples of some of the things. We use seasonally, hyper-local, endemic. A lot of the fishes, it's what the local fishermen bring in. You know, and these are day boats. These aren't like huge trawlers or anything like that. These are like really tiny fishermen with tiny boats. And, you know, they're going out for the day and what they catch is what I like to buy. And whatever they catch is I try to use for our menus because they're unique fishes to Hawaii. These are fishes that the local people grew up eating anyways, you know, so I definitely never use imported seafood that goes against what I want for our menus. We don't ever import luxury ingredients like caviar, truffles, or, you know, scallops from Hokkaido because those are all, those things are delicious. I love eating them. I love eating those luxury ingredients. They're freaking delicious to use them on my menu would be hiding or overshadowing what i want to showcase for our guests like if you were to come to one of my dinners like i want you to have authentic real ingredients from hawaii grown in hawaii forage from hawaii caught in hawaii whatever it is you know like you know the lamb i put on the menu is going to be grown in waimea grass-fed humanely raised it's not going to be a lamb from colorado I'll never do that ever. You know, I'll take it off the menu before I do that.
0: You kind of plan based on the seasonality and the seasons of what you expect to find foraging or what you expect the fishermen to bring in that day, but nothing's a guarantee, right? Because you're you are foraging and it is fishing. It's not catching, you know, as the saying goes. So you have expectations but you still have to be flexible as to what you're constructing in a menu because you need enough ingredients to do a menu for, you know, the entire month or how you go about it. So, when you do get something that you are looking for, do you try and make that the star of that dish or are you still trying to play with different flavors and make it a complete like component and hit on everything that you want to hit on?
1: That's a great and a, and a great point that, you know, for us in in order to maintain some sort of consistency or being able to perform a menu you know and and we're doing chef tasting menus so it's you know multi-coursed we range from like 7 courses all the way up to like 14 courses sometimes for our chef tastings we're fortunate in the sense that like we do have a lot of at least I feel like we have a lot of consistencies in terms of Take, for example, like there's a company called Maui Nui Venison. What they do here in Hawaii is very unique in the sense that on Maui especially, we have an overpopulation of Axis deer. Uh, they're actually decimating our native forest habitat, eating a lot of the, the native plants that have no defenses. This company, what they do is they harvest truly wild, free-range Axis deer. They do this by having an on-site USDA inspector. Um, Everything has to be a headshot in order for it to be deemed safe to serve. Uh, It goes to a certified processing plant and the USDA inspector inspects each individual animal on-site for wholesomeness. And this is an ingredient that I've used extensively because it's readily available to anyone, to the public you know, for purchase as, you know, for sale and consumption. You know, I love the ingredient. I love the fact that it's truly a wild animal. And from a hunting and food perspective, axis deer is one of the best tasting species of venison in the world. Like it's freaking delicious. It's a clean animal, very lean. It's probably like, I don't know how to explain it. Like, It's just a very delicious animal. It's not gamey at all. Uh, it has a really nice, robust, beefy f- flavor to it, you know. And they're basically trying to call these herds of thousands and thousands of axis deer on the island of Maui in order to help rebuild and replant critical native habitat because these deer were introduced and they were actually gifted to the king long <laughs> ago. So he put a ban on hunting them, and they just axis deer have the capability if the environment is perfect, which Maui is perfect for them. They breed twice a year and a lot of times they have twins. So in one year, one doe can produce four baby deer potentially. And because they're access deer, they're originally from India and their natural predator, which is the Bengal tiger, is not here in Hawaii. Their numbers, besides the hunters, pretty much go unchecked. After a couple of years, their population exponentially grows, two times two is four, four times four is 16, and so on and so forth. You know, th- that's one ingredient. And, you know, we have multiple ingredients that I rely on for consistency. We have the our kompachi, which is uh, grown in cages off the coast of Kona. Delicious fish. Uh, we have abalone farm uh, in Kona as well. We have koi shrimp. They're all sustainably farmed. And these are ingredients that I integrate into our menu because it's a consistent product, but it's also a good solution for helping Hawaii get more food sustainable.
0: Yeah, and plus, you know, with some of, you know, like the deer or, you know, I think there's wild pigs there too, putting an invasive species on the menu also helps highlight the story of kind of how, you know, this thing is now native To Hawaii, even though it's not supposed to be. So it kind of highlights, you know, the other side of the coin where it's not all just like, Hey, these are these great plants and great seafood. It's like, yeah, we also do have this other thing that wasn't supposed to be here. And now we got to figure out how we kind of keep it in check or get rid of it. It kind of encompasses and and brings everything full circle, which is awesome to see. and, And also the sustainability aspect of it too. With the sourcing that you still do, is it still just you or do you have some of the students come with you on like foraging trips and stuff like that too? Or how does that kind of work
1: these days? I usually invite like on the big foraging expeditions, I'll kind of informally put it out there for my staff if they're available and interested. They are free to come with us to forage and they've they've done that. The process of the foraging is also the educational opportunity for them. I heavily emphasize the importance, when to harvest, how to harvest responsibly, uh, when not to overtake, uh, when, when not to go, when to go, you know, and give them just kind of this big overview of proper ways to do it in order because it's one thing to share knowledge. It's another thing if knowledge gets used improperly afterwards. You know, it's kind of like showing a child, okay, this is how you load and shoot the gun, but not teaching them proper gun safety. To me, that would be irresponsible. So for me, there's constant asks from outside people or our guests that they want to come and forage with me. I'm very hesitant because it's one thing to show and teach someone, but it's another thing to like be thoughtful and have confidence that the person will take this information and use it responsibly afterwards. You know, it's a big reason why I kind of prevent myself from there's just, especially on Instagram, you know, or social media, like there's so many personal asks of like, oh, can I, I'm going to be in Hawaii for two weeks. Can I come and forage with you? And I'd love to, but there's only so much I can teach you and be responsible with that information without you not being a staff member and being committed to this project. So I don't, you know, I always decline because it's, it's not the right way to do it. Like I said, like we're going back to the gun safety thing is like, you're never going to show a kid like to be like, Oh, this is how you load the handgun and this is how you shoot it, you know, and not teach gun safety at the same time.
0: It's also very different for somebody to forage while they're on vacation versus if you're foraging and you live there year round. I couldn't exactly pinpoint what that is, but there's just a different respect level I guess maybe is what it is where if it's your continuous environment versus some place that you're visiting for a week or two. You know, it doesn't matter how good of a person you are or anything like that. You're not going to be as conscious or probably as careful if it's not essentially your backyard. That'd be my my belief, anyways. Off that,
1: yeah. There, I mean, and kind of going back to like the the native species that we forage and and kind of the schedule or how often or when I harvest. There's a couple ingredients. There's a few ingredients that we present within a super small window. There could be something like a. I'll give you an example is there's a a nocturnal sea snail that I will harvest in one particular area once a year at the most, at the very most. I will harvest from this area. I grew up harvesting from this particular area uh, growing up as a child, but I will not go back to that same area ever again till next year. You know, those really, really, I don't want to use the word rare, like they're just ingredients that are very limited in its resource and I do my part by not over exploiting or over harvesting in any fashion of that one particular ingredient um, in order for it to procreate. So in you know, I think for a lot of people it's it's a hard thing to understand where it's like you don't take until it's all gone. You need to be conscious that you take what you need with the idea that you need to leave enough behind so that the next generation will have it as well.
0: You pretty much do all the pop ups now, I think, at either Whitehaven Farm or Anna Ranch Heritage Center. Well, what is it about those two locations that made you want to partner with them and, and kind of those be the place where you wind up doing the, the dinners?
1: Yeah. So currently, um, primarily focusing on Whitehaven in Pepecale on the east side of the Big Island, you know, they have. For one thing, they have a gorgeous certified kitchen. It's a beautiful, brand-new certified kitchen. But also, I like uh, the owner's beliefs in their main focus there is producing uh, freeze-dried local fruits for sale. The owner has been really gracious and friendly with us. The dining area is gorgeous. It overlooks the ocean relatively easily accessible. But yet, once you're there, you feel very, from a guest standpoint, you feel very secluded. It's not in a metropolis, in a big city or anything. Like The dining room is literally just overlooking the Pacific Ocean. You know, outdoor seating. You get to experience uh, nature, I guess, in its good and bad forms. You know, you have some nights we have gorgeous, you know, sunsets and some nights the rain is kind of coming sideways and we need to find ways to keep the linen and tablecloths from flying away. But essentially it's a al- alfresco style uh, dining area. Very small intimate. We cap our dinners at twenty people or so in order to perform at a high level of service. So it's it's not a it's not a high volume uh, restaurant where we're just looking at trying to maximize as much money and revenue as possible. Like we're we're like very conscious, like, okay, let's, let's cap it at 20 people. So we're able to provide a, you know, a really pleasant level dining experience so we can give each guest their, their due attention or, you know, maintain a high level of service standards, uh, but also a high level of um, food execution as well.
0: Are you still considering eventually opening a, Brick and mortar space for now, or is it always going to be at you know White Farm or or whatever? Like you're comfortable with it just remaining in its existing format versus having a not a new space to increase you know the amount of times you do dinners or anything, but just a dedicated space.
1: We're still looking for a, a brick and mortar as much as I think the perception of the industry now with. You know, with the pandemic especially, the industry took a big hit in terms of a lot of restaurants shut down, a lot of restaurants closed. Um, The industry really kind of took a turn, good and bad, in many ways, from the pandemic. What's interesting about this island is that there's actually not a lot of inventory in terms of like, you would think like, oh, there's so many restaurants that shut down. There's a lot of empty spaces where basically there's a, a turnkey restaurant waiting for us to move into that's actually not the case here it's hard to find a size of restaurant that I'm looking for which is small that is essentially a turnkey uh, with with minimal financial input required there isn't much inventory and the location like for me my first pick of the litter is I, I want to have this permanent restaurant in Waimea. Uh I think it has the clientele, but also it's right in the hub of a lot of the farms and ranchers that I love to use their products. To be able to have this restaurant in their backyard essentially is really important to me. It's been a difficult goal so far to find something square footage wise that would work for us, uh, something that also would allow an on site farm, which is something I want as well. So I can pick and choose certain farmed produce that I would like on the menu consistently that would be unique and that would be a good representation for Hawaii's food we're still looking we're still hoping to find something you know right now we're we're happy with our situation and you know we're we're doing well if anyone was to dive into our social media platforms or our website I think you'll find that what we provide is a very unique experience even in terms of hawaii's food you know i don't think very many people in hawaii or chefs in hawaii are doing what we do in the style that we're doing but i'm not hoping or wishing for this kind of a renaissance or like everyone every chef or every restaurant needs to cook like how we do in hawaii i'm not i'm not even looking at at it that way like I just want to be able to provide our guests with an authentic experience. I want our guests to leave with a better understanding of Hawaii's food culture. I want our staff to eventually, you know, when they do leave our project to pursue the rest of their careers, like to take something important or something relevant to Hawaii's food culture. Hopefully, they take away some food knowledge that's unique to Hawaii. Those are all the things that I want to create for this project. You know, like I'm not gonna live forever. I don't wanna take all this knowledge of our ingredients and unique food culture. I don't want to take it to the grave with me. So I'm I'm teaching my my younger cooks, you know, I'm basically vomiting all this information to them and hopefully they absorb some of it and and pretty much like trying to pass the torch onto them in terms of food knowledge and food cookery, they can choose how they want to use that information in the future. And I hope I teach them well enough that they, they take this information and use it responsibly, use it in a respectful way while also promoting what is great about Hawaii you know, and, and our food culture. That's kind of my big hopes for the future and hesitate calling it a restaurant. I don't want to call it a restaurant. I think it's more than a restaurant. So the simplest way, I just call it a project.
0: A couple of years ago, you got nominated for a James Beard Award for the first time. Also nominated this year as well. I think uh, in 2022, when you were nominated, it was the first time a chef from the Big Island was nominated in like almost two decades. So how did you find out and kind of what did it mean to you when you first discovered that you were nominated?
1: Both of them were really Unprecedented, I guess. Um, The first one, I got a, I got a text message from my business partner, Jem at six o'clock in the morning, and I'm looking at this screenshot. Basically, she sent me a screenshot, and I'm like, I texted her back. I'm like, what am I looking at? She's like, you're a semi finalist for James Beard under Emerging Chef or whatever, and I'm like, wait, what? (laughs) And I'm just like, kind of like, what are you talking about? Like it was such a It was such a foreign concept or idea, and you know, unexpected. And like we discussed earlier, you know, I I was fortunate enough to work under Chef Alan Wong, who's a James Beard Awardee. It was an accolade that never even crossed my mind, or thought was possible, or you know, it was was such a, I don't know. I guess like you know, for me, it's like this project is so small and unassuming. We don't even have a permanent space. And to make it onto the, the list, you know, in the semifinals, it was, you know, amongst a lot of the peers that I hold in high regards. Um, they're on that list as well, uh, from Hawaii. And I'm thinking to myself, like, is kinda like a pinch me moment. Yeah, I mean, I'm I feel honored and at the same time humbled and yeah, that, that first one was definitely uh something pretty crazy.
0: When COVID happens you know, uh, it, for those that don't know and, and maybe have slipped their memory, I mean, everything goes into lockdown, but even on Hawaii, a little bit more so that, you know, inter-island travel is banned for a time. 90% of the food uh, for Hawaii is imported to the islands. There was, you know, run on food banks and, and stuff like that. When all that kind of happens, does that wind up, you know, three years you know later, are more chefs looking at foraging as... A way to kind of offset some of those past experiences with food shortages and also now inflation and everything. Like are people actually reaching out to you, like other chefs in the industry, kind of picking your brain, you know, to find out what they're able to kind of forage, even if they're on a different island, or has nobody really kind of gone down that path or, or reached out to you?
1: There's a couple of young chefs in Hawaii, I think have taken a page out of what we do and and doing certain things such as foraging on a on a small level or you know trying to source more locally i think that's great i also understand the business dynamic for a lot of my my colleagues and my professional cooking buddies out there that have large restaurants and do high volume that what we do at now is not feasible for their operations it's just not realistic you know like a lot of my good buddies like they're still cooking or executive chefs or chef de cuisines at at large resorts or hotels or even if they own their own uh restaurant the volume capacity that they're doing is so high that like there's no way you're forging for something for this restaurant you guys just do two Big of a numbers, you know, and I understand that, you know, and it's also again like what makes us kind of unique. Like I'm preventing ourselves from getting big. We cannot, we cannot get big. We just cannot for the things I want to put on the menu. There's no way we can do 50 covers a night, seven days a week. There's just no way. Like we're gonna, we're gonna drain and deplete the ingredients that we want to showcase. Like we're gonna run it dry. And I get it, you know, and which is why like we keep it really tiny, really small, really intimate. You know, one of the places I want to go is Harbor House Inn in California. Um, what I've seen and, and know about this restaurant is that they're very small. They, they're they about three hours north of San Francisco. They're in this really tiny privately owned, you know, hotel slash restaurant. And they do 18 covers a night or 18 to 20 covers a night which is what we do every night you know 18 to 20 covers and they don't source anything two hours outside of their restaurant you know so everything is hyper local they're foraging seaweed from the ocean themselves and they're the most similar in concept to what we do and those this style of restaurant makes them unique as well for that area it's also not a McDonald's you cannot you cannot churn out a franchise out of it and you cannot do a dollar menu from it. You know, it's just, there's no room for expansion in that sense if you're keeping the ingredients and the food paramount to the mission.
0: That's interesting that you mentioned that Harbor House Inn is kind of the model that kind of closely aligns with you because for people that don't know or maybe haven't read or done as much research, I mean, just to recap here, you're a two-time James Beard-nominated chef. You host a pop-up that focuses on native ingredients to Hawaii near Hilo on the big island, which is everybody goes to Oahu and Maui um, are the two most uh, visited islands out of the the Hawaiian chain. And as the stories go, I mean, you've done things like spending 10 hours overnight fishing for this nocturnal reef fish, trekking across lava rocks on the edge of the wave break for sea urchin and, and stuff like that. And yet you're limited in the covers that you do. Tickets and the pricing for an event of this style are incredibly economical from a consumer standpoint. How does that all work? Like, how does just the finance, like the, f- the finance aspect, comparing to all the effort that you're putting in, like, how does that all work with inflation being what it is, being in a remote setting where it is? Like, my brain can't like figure it out because, like, if you look at the Harbor House Inn, like they're basically double the price of what you charge and granted you know they're in the bay area but you know they're north of it in california and everything they're kind of double what you guys charge for per tickets
1: uh, a lot of my professional colleagues or even some of our guests who are in the industry claim that we're not charging enough and i know we're not charging enough right now at the same time i i feel like we're still trying to grow our our fan base yeah, the amount of hours it takes me on a normal week to forage or source the ingredients is not economical in any sense of the fashion of that that word. You know, it's it's not cost effective. You know, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of driving. It takes a lot of resources. It takes certain things are dangerous. Kind of like picking the sea urchin on a rough day is really dangerous, and I cut my legs up and what what have you but um i guess for me on a personal level i was never a person to and i think this might be my downfall from a business standpoint is that like i was never one to like covet money or grand idea that like i'm gonna build this restaurant and i'm like gonna like make money hand over fist you know like that was never Something attractive to me, which is also my downfall because I don't place a high priority on money. I do things a lot of times unconventionally where it's like, oh, God, like you just spent like 48 hours fishing for one ingredient, you know, from driving to packing the truck to to fishing all night. To driving back home, and it's like a four hour round trip journey, and blah, 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 blah. Now you got to process the fish, you got to clean the fish, you got to dry age the fish, whatever, for one ingredient. It's not economical. It's not realistic to do it on a high volume, or like it's just insane to do it. But at the same time, like when I put it on the plate, like I can feel proud personally. And I know in my heart too, like a lot of things that I do put on the plate and present to a guest, they're not going to find it anywhere else in Hawaii. They're not gonna find it anywhere else. We're gonna give them something really unique and special.
0: On the website, there's like a eleven like signature dishes. Is one of those your favorite or one that you're most proud of?
1: Yeah, they're all meaningful in different ways. You know, I think one of our most popular ones from a guest standpoint is the Oatello Berry Cheesecake, which is an homage to my mom and my auntie. I cook it differently than they do, but the soul of that dish or that dessert is still there. And it's basically, for me, anyways, it's a vehicle to showcase the ohelo berry, which is, you know, an, an endemic berry found only in Hawaii and nowhere else in the world. But on top of that, what makes it even more rare is not found on every island, it's only found on Maui and the big island. So it's found on two islands in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and nowhere else in the entire world. And I think that's part of what makes that dish special. And on a personal level, I use my mom and my auntie's concept of this uh, dessert to to elevate or showcase it, you know, in, in our own way.
0: So I asked this question to both uh, Taylor and Chris when they were on. So you know, I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, and you know, he has a, a famous episode there in Hawaii and. Kind of the whole subtext is what makes someone or something Hawaiian. Your fourth generation, your parents or great-grandparents came over in like 1890 from Japan, but I mean, you're born and raised in Hawaii. So to me, that means you're Hawaiian, but there might be some that say, well, you weren't, your family lineage isn't continuously here, so you're not Hawaiian. But how do you see it? Is it about ethnicity, heritage? Does
1: it matter? First of all, like I have like huge respect for Taylor and, and Chris Kajioka. You know, they're I I think they're colleagues of mine that I look up to. But to answer that second part of the question, you know, like Hawaii for someone like me who's fourth generation born in Hawaii, like yeah, my my great grandfather was born here in 1895. He was one of the first Japanese immigrants. And he was proud of this that was allowed to go to, quote-unquote, an American school. He went to an American school. He was very proud that he, he learned English. Our family's line has been here in Hawaii for a long time. But it also says that my family was very poor because we came here so long ago from Japan. That means we were super poor. Like They were just trying to like dig out a better life for their, their children. So they moved here for, you know, in prospects of a better life. If you were to look at my immediate family's dynamic, my first cousins on both sides of the family, my mom's side and my dad's side, my first cousins are all quarter Hawaiian. You know, you need to put that into context. Like a quarter Hawaiian is on of Hawaiian bloodline in today's age where really tiny ethnic groups, you know to find someone who is 50% or quarter percent native american is kind of like finding a unicorn it's just the fact that the world is a, a smaller place now a lot of different ethnic groups are have are marrying and having multi ethnic children and and this is kind of going sideways on on this issue but like as a human society like i don't understand the the fighting amongst different ethnic groups because if you if you keep going or the human race keeps going in this direction, everyone is gonna be of mixed ethnicity eventually. There will be no such thing as Japanese or Chinese or English or whatever. You know, like the world's tiny now. You know, everyone marries a different ethnic group or many people do or whatever. Hawaii's like that. You know, Hawaii's always been known as the melting pot where we have a lot of uh different ethnic groups here. And for me, I'm just by chance pure Japanese, but that's not a true reflection of my immediate family because all my first cousins are quarter Hawaiian, you know. <laughs> so it's the dynamic or the type of family environment that I grew up in. I guess I, I can say it's dominantly Japanese in in essence, but Ultimately, for the big picture of my family dynamic, I think it's very local. It's not Hawaiian, but it's local, is the best way I can describe it. It's a very difficult thing to describe.
0: I think it's just something interesting to think about in the sense that when you made the comparison to Native Americans earlier, in order to have somebody who's 100% whatever um, ethnicity, that also kind of means that their core family never left that area too as well. So it kind of goes against human nature in a way from, you know, the hunter gatherer and, and traveling and, and going to different parts and spreading population and all that stuff. So it's just, it's just kind of an interesting dynamic to kind of think about when you get the chance to. So anything else on the horizon for you professionally? You know, obviously you have the project, you know, that's ongoing, different menus
1: kind of every month, but anything else that you're working on? No, like this is my, my sole focus. Um, I still, we're trying to make bigger efforts to uh, expose our staff to um, more local farms and ranches here. So we, we've started to kind of ramp up some farm and ranch visitations on the island just to kind of expand on the educational side for our staff and also for my own personal kind of professional development you know, and keep myself updated with some of the cool things the farmers and ranchers are doing and working on. Or you know, are they raising a new type of pork breed, or experimenting with a new pork breed? Or you know, is this farmer that I've used for a couple of decades are they growing something new or experimenting with something new in the dirt? Those things are are still important to stay updated, and that's kind of our focus. Um, Lately, while at the same time, still leaning on our realtor to keep giving us potential sites that might be available or just kind of putting out feelers with with my cooking buddies. If they see or hear of anything that might be a potential fit for us so we can we can, you know, move into a a permanent space or a more permanent space. You know, those those are kind of our focuses right now. And the uh, the menu development is always something that for me is never ending. It'll always happen. I know it's time to quit when I stop being interested in the menu development side and experimenting with the ingredients and trying to push the whole Hawaii's uh, food cuisine kind of forward and so forth. You know, like that's always something that interests me. So and why I want to cook anyway. So.
0: So this next question comes from the previous guest on the podcast, Master Sommelier Vinnie Morrow, who's over at Press Restaurant in the kind of wine country area, Napa Valley. He left behind a question for you: What is the biggest interpersonal challenge you've had coming up
1: through your career that you've faced? In my career, especially in the earlier parts, I think on a personal level, I'm 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 just very driven to succeed, I think. But I think what I struggled with for a big part of my career, and I think I still struggle with it to a certain extent, is that I think for a large part of my career, I I rose through the ranks faster than I mentally matured. Meaning all of a sudden, one day, I was a sous chef at the whole grill and I was in charge of running lunch and dinner and Maintaining a certain level of food costs, maintaining a certain level of positive guest feedback and maintaining a certain level of food execution and quality. And, you know, this is all at like, you know, like I just, dis- I kind of mentioned before is like, you know, this was considered the number one spa resort. It's on a Four Seasons property. There's a certain level of ex- expectations. And uh, when I became in charge of running the kitchen of this restaurant, I could cook every station daytime and nighttime and everything like the cooking part wasn't the problem, but the problem for me was that I wasn't mentally mature enough to to manage the cooks properly or or manage the staff properly. You know, I was just a young kid that could cook and you know, there was a lot of instances and meltdowns and swearing and the the company actually made me go to anger management. Because I had a huge incident with a server during service. It was horrible. It was just terrible. It was like such an out-of-body experience. And it was just basically an emotional breakdown stress-wise for me. Because I, I was so young at that point and had so much responsibility put on me to perform at a certain level. I had a meltdown. And the outcome was I was fortunate that I didn't get fired the morning after the incident happened. At dinner service, I found myself in my executive chef's office first thing in the morning. He convinced the the COO not to, um, but the stipulation was that I had to go to three eight hour days of anger management class. And looking back at that time in my career, it was it was pretty much like I fell in or worked into this position that I was emotionally not old enough. I wasn't mentally old enough to handle that kind of stress. yet. pretty interesting (laughs) experience.
0: This next question comes from one of our listeners. Uh, They wrote in, do you ever go to any other locations? Uh, I'm assuming they mean islands, probably in your scenario, to do any foraging or hunting or anything, or is it just strictly where you live? Uh, So essentially the big island for you.
1: I hunt from time to time on some of the other islands. Um, I used to be part of an archery club on the island of Molokai. It was an archery-only area that we, we hunted axis deer. I haven't gone in a couple of years, so um, I I kind of gave away my my membership. My most recent off-island hunting trip was uh, almost a year ago uh, in May. I, I went to Kauai to... Um, do some sheep and goat hunting with a buddy of mine. He's also a, a culinary instructor there in, in Kauai at, at the community college there. So he's a longtime colleague of mine. And I've always wanted to go hunt with him on Kauai. So, um, yeah, that was my last off island. But unfortunately, I'm unable to serve what I shoot because it's it's not, you know, USDA inspected, which is uh, Hawaii law, it's purely for personal consumption. But um, yeah, I, I still hunt and I definitely fish a lot still yet or try to fish as much as possible when time permits or the weather and ocean permits. So
0: so this final set of questions, this last 10, uh, we asked everybody who comes on the podcast. So nice compare and contrast for the listeners. So a little bit more rapid fire style for you here. But looking back on your career, who would you say is the biggest
1: influence on it? Chef Alan Wong. I, I grew the most... Technically, under him, but not also technically. Like he really helped me mature in in my growth process. Um, I still try to emulate him in a lot of ways with how I train and teach my staff. I use a lot of his philosophies, and yeah, like I, I've learned so much uh, in my years working under him. Uh, I feel very fortunate. Uh, I use a lot of his food concepts. Or theories on on cooking to this day, I think they're really grounded in solid fundamentals that cannot be denied. So he's always been my biggest influence on a professional side. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? I love my dehydrator. Um, I find it's a good way to concentrate flavors on certain ingredients, especially a lot of the wild ingredients like the wild forage limu, which is you know, what we call seaweed here. Uh, It's a great way to concentrate its flavors or also a lot of the wild herbs and greens uh, I'll use to dehydrate in order to pulverize and use, you know, sometimes I'll integrate it into pastas or I'll just simply dust it on a plate. But the dehydration process I feel is for a lot of ingredients is really a a good technique to intensify flavor because you're eliminating excessive water content
0: restaurant you recommend that isn't your own so a person you know gets stuck at the airport on the big island uh they reach out to you you know hey where should we go eat we're stuck here overnight flight doesn't leave now till tomorrow you know you guys are not open so you kind of point them in this direction as a place that they should go check out
1: definitely my my favorite restaurant in in hilo is uh moon and turtle chef mark Pomaski and uh his wife sony own this small restaurant. He's super talented. He's also a James Beard semi-finalist. Super talented. I have the utmost respect for him. And their food is amazing. Their food is amazing. It's delicious.
0: Bucket list travel destination and bucket list restaurant. So place you have not visited yet, but you still want to travel to. And also a restaurant you have not dined at yet, but you still want to visit and
1: eat at one day. I've always wanted to go to Spain. (sighs) Haven't been to Spain yet. I just think their food culture seems to be like super amazing in terms of maintaining food traditions, uh, holding ingredients in high regard and respect for the ingredients there. For example, like Iberico ham, the way they treat the pork and how they cure it and everything dry aging. And, you know, everything seafood from, you know, the regard and respect they they treat their seafoods. Like it just interests me so much. I, I would love to go there. As far as bucket list restaurant, I was I was fortunate enough to eat at Per Se in New York. I still haven't been to the French Laundry. So I would really love to eat at Thomas Keller's flagship restaurant one day. And if I'm in California or that neck of the woods, I might as well, like I would want to go to Harbor House Inn since it's within the same state and within you know, a few hours drive from uh, Yonville. You know, I think those are my two bucket lists. Like I definitely was a huge Thomas Keller fan. You know, I think it was like one of my first real cookbooks I ever bought for myself. I thought it was the coolest, most beautiful pictures of food I've ever seen in my life. Finally, eating at Per Se validates those feelings. Uh, I think Per Se was amazing experience. The food was just like so delicious and so well executed. But I'd I'd still love to go to the original first uh, flagship restaurant. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? I've seen my executive chef and my chef de cuisine have a a physical fight in the hallway to the elevator and no one wanted to break it up because they were the two biggest, most muscular guys in the entire kitchen and no one would have been able to break it up anyways is the craziest thing I've seen uh, in a kitchen. Aside from my, my meltdown, I think the most craziest thing was self-inflicted when I had my meltdown in the kitchen and almost got fired and had to go to anger management.
0: Food or drink guilty pleasures? is there anything, whether it's fast food or some type of candy or something that you know is not healthy for you, but you just can't help yourself?
1: I love tater tots. I love tater tots and anything with gooey cheese on top. That's probably my guilty pleasure. Oh, and of course, uh, I still love my adult beverages, especially beer.
0: What is the one cookbook everyone should own, whether they're a professional chef, a home chef, uh, somebody who's just interested in the profession? Like, what do you think that one cookbook everybody should have is?
1: I think everyone should own, you know, professional or amateur cook at home. I think the flavor Bible is a great book to have in terms of if you want to broaden or play around with new ingredients or new flavors for yourself, this is a great starting point or guideline where like, oh, I want to use fennel. What can I use fennel with that will go together and taste well together? Well, The Flavor Bible is that book where you can look up fennel. It's alphabetically ordered, gives you that ingredient's flavor profile, Uh, What it tastes like and its cooking characteristics. You know how to what cooking techniques lend itself best to that ingredient, and what other ingredients taste well with that ingredient. You know, and it's a very thorough, good starting point for you know, especially I think home cooks like if they wanna branch out to expand their cooking repertoire, like they need to have this book to as kind of like a safety net you know, it's like, okay, like I'm, I'm, I want to try cook this ingredient. I'm not sure what to do. You know, there is so much information online with recipes. You can look up anything and there's going to be a recipe, but if you really want to try and cook off the cuff at home or cook, you know, experimentally at home with a certain ingredient, I think this book is a good starting point because it can give you good insight on, on where to start and what kind of other ing- supporting ingredients can be used, you know, in combination with that ingredient. So that'd be my choice.
0: Favorite dish thing you ever cooked, created. Kind of looking back on your career, you can point to this as almost like your aha moment. Like you knew you could be a, a professional chef one day after you made
1: this. If I had to choose one aha uh, like dish or whatever's would be like, it's a signature canape that we still serve really often. Is um, it's a Local free range chicken livers that I I pair with burnt and uh, turn it into basically a custard, similar to like creme brulee almost. After turning it into a custard, it's whipped and then piped onto, you know, into a canapé form and then paired with, you know, some kind of tart local berry. It took me almost two years to kind of like really be happy with the recipe that I created. But at the same time, it kind of gave me that thought where it's like okay like this has definitely has some fusion going on there's you know japanese miso inside of white miso but then i'm using a a european cooking technique in the custard but i'm using the primary ingredient that i'm showcasing is local free-range chicken livers it was kind of this moment where like all of those components all together created something delicious but also at the same time like something new but something familiar and old school at the same time was kind of occurring to me. And I think for a lot of our dishes, I still try hard to, you know, push some boundaries. But at the same time, like I want like even if locals from Hawaii eat our food, I want them to have nostalgic in a lot of ways. Like what I feed them is like, oh my God, this flavor. I remember my grandma cooking this when I was a little kid. You know, like those are flavors. Uh, flavor profiles I want to maintain for our, our cooking. It's just just fancier preparations maybe or f- fancier execu- executions or like more higher end ingredients included. But whatever it is, like I still want at the at the end of the day, like if there's a local, if there's local guests coming to our dinner, like I'd want them to feel nostalgic with a lot of the dishes that we present to them.
0: I'm a Anthony Bourdain fan but not everybody is or was uh, if you were is there a moment episode scene about him that still stands out to you or if you weren't is there somebody else who was on TV Emerald, Jacques Pépin, Julia
1: Child somebody uh, that you kind of gravitated towards when you were coming up through your career I love Anthony Bourdain I'd like to think I watched every single thing that he's done in terms of um television I think the most compelling the most compelling thing that he's produced for me anyways is still his uh kitchen confidential i think that was the most um i think that was the most like compelling disturbing truthful book about uh kitchen culture at that time and i kind of hinted to it earlier on in our conversation where like you know i was at the tail end of that kind of abusive genre excessive drug use in kitchens back then, you know, the professional kitchens or back of house, you know, being just trenches or dungeons, I've caught the tail end of all of that part of our industry. So when I read that book, it kind of like hit home in a lot of ways and it was so truthful and so honest. And I think the industry now is very different from when he was in it but i i definitely caught the tail end of it so
0: where can people find you social media website plug everything
1: our website is Uh we're on twitter we're on facebook uh youtube instagram all the um those social media platforms
0: yeah and people can uh make reservations through either the website or I think talk right you guys use talk for that
1: Yeah we use talk and we use the webs uh, our website for our scheduling of, of dinners and and to reserve uh seats
0: It looks amazing and there's nothing else quite like it I, I know people try to compare it to I think you know noma because of the foraging aspect and stuff like that but It's just super unique, and I mean, it's even more unique for a place like Hawaii, where it's just already kind of this remote in a way place. You know, it's not super tough to get to, but it's not super easy to get to either. You know, you gotta make a conscious effort getting on a plane and going across half of the Pacific Ocean. So, you know, we haven't been to the Big Island yet. I know that's on our to do list. You've been to Oahu and, and Maui, and those are great islands too as well. Each have kind of their own unique thing, but you know, we definitely want to check out the Big Island and everything, and and whenever we do, I, I don't think it'll be this year, just because our, our son is a little young, uh, probably to be making that trek on uh the flight time there, but it'll be soon. Um, you know, I think every couple of years we wind up making it out there. We just love visiting and you know, it's a great place. So I'm sure we'll be seeing you and and stopping in there to check out the project and everything and have some delicious native food.
1: We'd love to have you, definitely. And especially people who Enjoy natural environments, you know, and the outdoors. The Big Island is the most biodiverse of all of them. You know, you have upper dryland forests, you have wetland rainforests, you have mesozoic grass, whatever, and you have like, you know, deserts and you have lava fields and you have tundra, you know, high elevation tundra. You know, it's very biodiverse, which is also why we have such a diverse amount of ingredients that we like to showcase here as well. So from that standpoint, it's it's an amazing island. I think it's it's the most exciting island and the most beautiful of all the islands. So
0: Yeah, we can't wait to visit for sure. Stay in touch. If you need anything from us, let us know. We always want to support everybody who comes on the podcast as much as we can. But otherwise, hopefully we'll be seeing you uh, soon in like a, a year or so, you know, because that'll uh, be about the appropriate time for us to take another trek out there. Um, and, and just kind of have a a nice vacation and everything too. So yeah, I mean, like I said, stay in touch. We'll be watching from afar and, and we'll be seeing you soon.
1: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Look forward to having you.
0: A big thanks again to Brian for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his day to chat about his career and Hawaii and everything that has gone into Na'u and where he kind of wants it to go and everything. So, and also a big thanks again to his restaurant partner, Jem, for helping kind of coordinate and, and set some of this up too as well. So want to give her a shout out. You can, again, find him, follow him on Instagram at Hirata 808 And then also Na'u Hilo are the two accounts that you can find him at. Reservations on Talk. Too as well for whenever they're doing the chef tasting menus too. If you're in the area, you know even Hawaii, you get a flight over to the Big Island, or if you go to the Big Island too as well, try and coordinate that with one of the chefs' menus, um, and that way you can go to dinner and just have an awesome experience and try something super original if you're into that sort of thing. But if you're listening to this podcast, I would assume that you kind of are. You can follow us on Instagram too as well at Spoon Mob. Check us out on our website SpoonMob.com. All the different stuff on all our guests and everything is up there. We. Keep but running list and up to date too as well for any new stuff that comes out uh, until that guest returns or whatever. And uh, also make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast as well, whatever platform um, that you prefer to use. Most are Apple and Spotify, but we're on all the others. Again, as a reminder, Stitcher, if you use that, the entire platform, not just for us, but for any podcast is ceasing to exist on August 29th. So you're going to want to find a new podcast player uh, in the meantime. Um, otherwise you're going to lose access to all your podcasts that you're following and have to just kind of figure it out on the fly when that happens. So a heads up there if you use that. Otherwise, that is it for this week. So we'll have another new episode next week. Appreciate everybody who's been listening, writing in to as well, continue to do so. Continue to help spread the word. If you're new here, welcome. If you've been here for a while listening, thank you for your continued support. And we will talk to you guys next week on Thursday.